Here we go. Uh, we I are live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Security Squawk Podcast. My name is Brian Horning with Exact IT Solutions. And with me today, I have my usual suspects of co-hosts, Reginald Andre down in uh, Miami, Florida with Arc Solvers and Randy Bryan in San Marcos, Texas with Tech Rescue. Good morning, gentlemen. How are we today? Doing well, doing well. Doing great, man. So did you um, did you get new contacts? No, dude. <laughs> got my gla- I got my readers oh. right here. I got my readers right. I only need them when I need to l- read stuff really small, like on my phone. Oh, nice. Uh, but I do need to go to the eye doctors because I'm over forty. As you, as you're like an expert with this eye shit. Yeah, I'm an <laughs> over forty expert. That's for no. sure. Yeah, <clears throat> I definitely hit forty, and my my eyesight it gets progressively worse. Like every month, it feels like. Yeah, it's called presbyopia. And it happens to everybody. Is Even there a if you're for that? out and you're in shape and blah blah blah. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> is there a pill for this? Because <laughs> this is probably a better topic than what we're about to go into. But a lot more fun. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, we are the podcast that talks about the business of cybersecurity, right? Because this this cybersecurity <laughs> stuff, as you probably know, is getting more and more intense. Uh, Lots of crazy things happening at a very high level. We're not going to talk about a lot of this today, but we've seen some ransomware groups actually, you know, be charged or arrested this week. I don't know how much charges are going to do if you can't go in and get the guys. I I know that some of that has happened, like their charges have been filed or whatever. Hmm. Um, But we've actually had some action on some ransomware actors in other countries in, I think, Romania and or actually Romania, I think, were the charges, Ukraine was i think an arrest was made around revel and uh grand cab that old ransomware group grand cab i guess these guys were part of grand cab and then revel um so there's a lot of that stuff going on uh, so i call it the a win for the for the good guys there um but what's it, what we're going to talk about today is uh ransomware attacks against a major financial trading platform like i guess we could call it that um there's been a significant number of ransomware attempts this year, close to a billion. And we're going to talk about those numbers and what that means for you and your business and what we can expect the rest of this year and heading into 2022. Uh, and then we're going to jump into what we talked about last week. And, you know, we we went in pretty in depth uh, through the whole show on really how ransomware attackers use what they get from you or the situation that you're in and use that as leverage to get paid. Um, so as a follow on to that on the show today, we're going to talk about some things you can do to start protecting yourself from ransomware. Um, so before we get into that, remember this is an organically grown show. 
please remember to leave comments. If you have any questions or comments, drop them in whatever social media platform you're watching us now live on or as we're recording the show. We will answer those live. Um, but remember, we are on every major podcast platform out there, Spotify, um, YouTube podcasts, iTunes. Please remember to share our show. Just simply go out, post it on your social media, let your friends and family know that this podcast exists and we will keep putting out podcasts for you to consume and get the latest and greatest information on you know, cybersecurity. And this applies to everyone, not just businesses. We talk to... Uh, our audience in terms of if you're an employee at a company, if you're running your own business, if you're a business owner in a major corporation, um, we cover the gamut of what this should look like from your perspective. Uh, so a lot of our older shows and podcasts, pretty much, you know, you can go through those. And if you're an employee of a company, we're going to talk about things like things that you should have that your company should be giving you, like security and awareness training. And you can learn a lot from the content that we put out on the show. So it's not just for business owners. It's definitely not for technical people. I'll tell you that. Although we do have a massive technical following and other MSPs that follow our channel. And we, we thank you immensely. Uh, hopefully we teach you something along the way. Um, but we do know that you guys are experts as well. So jumping into it, boys, let's go right into the content. Um, first one. Big news today, Robinhood was hit by a data breach exposing emails and the names of 7 million users. So uh, it's an investing app, uh, very popular, very popular with like, I don't know, the millennials and Gen Zs or is it Gen Z or is that the right generation? Do I have the right generation? Gen Z, yeah. All right. So these guys seem to like, you know, instead of like your TD Ameritrade, your E-Trade, Scott Trade, whatever's left today. Um <clears throat> You know, it's Robinhood and Webull seem to be the two that, uh, you know, the younger kids like to mess around on or invest in, so to speak. Um, but they were hit. Right. And we're going to bring that up. NBC News, like every major outlet is covering this. Um, Randy, what do we know so far? What's going on with this particular breach? Is this a ransomware attack or is this something else? Um, I don't know from the details if it's a literal ransomware attack. We know that the uh, the bad actors went in and got data out of the network, presented it back to the company and said, pay us a ransom or we're going to put all of this stuff out on the Internet. The, the I, I have seen come across my newsfeed um, an update from Robinhood that said no data was was leaked, but. I mean, if you just look in this article, obviously they took several hundred records out so they could then show it to Robinhood and say, hey, we've breached your network. So I don't think you can come back and say that no data got out. We know at the very minimum, those 300 or so records that they demonstrated they had control of, that stuff's been leaked for sure. Yeah, 100 um, percent. You know, it's always interesting since the beginning of this podcast, Andre and I, and I know Randy, you've shared in this as well. You've been with us for a while now. We always talk about that dreaded statement that these companies come out with initially in the early stages of learning about these breaches and say, you know, no customer private information, like nothing serious has been stolen. 
I mean, Robinhood has pretty much admitted that these 7 million users, they got your name and email address, right? So if we dig into this article a little further, um, you know, they know right now they're admitting in the press for 310 people, the information taken included their name, date of birth, and zip code. And then of those 10 customers had more extensive account details revealed, Robinhood said in the statement. So the unauthorized parties demanding an extortion payment. So here we go with another like extortion. So it sounds like they may have hit a database or logged into something somewhere, some way where they had a deeper level of access than the average bear. I think you're right, Randy, in that 10 customers are probably the 10 customers when they reached out to Robinhood said, hey, we stole a bunch of data of your customers. Here's the proof. And they gave them 10 records of 7 million. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably why they're like, okay, they at least have the information on 10. Uh, and then they must have probably gave them maybe more by saying like, well, here's 300 and some, and we have more than just, you know, names and email addresses. Right. So I, I guess the picture that I'm, the impression I'm left with by reading this is like, 320 people out of 7 million were affected. Andre, do you think that that's the case? Yeah, I, I do. And what I would have loved, and I don't know if you've ever seen Hold this. on, stop. You think that out of 7 million people, 320 mm -hmm. are, are the only ones affected? Oh, I misunderstood what you said. Okay, okay. I was hoping you misunderstood oh, okay. your question. No, no, no. I thought you, okay, okay. Yeah, no, definitely it, it's not, but what, because I was going to go to a different point of this where I was hoping that they actually said that where the statement where it says it believes no social security numbers, bank account numbers, or debit card numbers were exposed. That part, have you, what I wish it would have said is, and even if it was, it's all encrypted and it doesn't matter. Either that. Because like it could be encrypted, but they may have had access to a computer where, yeah, that person was authorized, right? Yeah, data reader permissions. Yeah, like remember when Twitter got hacked, and they posted on those people's like like Bitcoin addresses on like major celebrities' mm -hmm. profile, and, and it was we, they found out it was because somebody got tricked into they got a phone call and they thought it was Twitter IT and they got tricked into and got on their computer. I mean, if that if that happens to somebody at your company, somebody at Robinhood picked up the phone or, or called the number and thought that they were letting IT remote in. Right. And then these guys are now on the computer and they have access, you know, maybe the person's already logged into that database. Right. And, you know, that's authenticated. That's all going to be unencrypted yep. in that process of being authenticated. So even though it may have been authentic or it may have been encrypted, you know, we can't assume that this was a backdoor type of attack. This could have been like somebody just got on somebody's computer through social engineering mm -hmm. um, and got this data very quickly and realized what they had in front of them and, and stole what they needed to steal. Um, we don't know what the situation is, but I go back to what I said earlier, Andre. How many times have we talked about this and covered stories like this and said, and it said exactly what they're saying right here. It's too soon. And I've been preaching this for well over a year. It's too soon for companies to come out and make statements like this. You have no clue what they got, how they like, like 
based on this information in this article, I can already tell that they don't have enough telemetry or enough knowledge at this point to determine if that statement that I have highlighted is actually factual, right? And Andre, say your famous line that you always say about when they're going to update this and when and, and what time of day and what day of the week. <laughs> well, I, I like to say same script, different casts, and probably by Thanksgiving is when you know they're going to be like, hey, by the way, everybody, we're going to offer you yeah. two years of credit monitoring. because Black, Black, Black Friday at like 5 o'clock, they'll release. Yep. A press yeah. release that says, "Oh, actually, all seven million users were affected." Yeah, right. And here's right. two years of credit monitoring. Yep. And that's how it'll go down, and you can mark it down because it goes down like this almost nine times out of ten. Um, and I don't feel like this will be any different. If NBC News is covering it, there's a lot of chatter out there on the interwebs, on social media. They know that this is a big deal. Um, and this isn't going to be the last that we hear about Robinhood. So I want to add a couple points real quick Go ahead, brother. to ponder. So one, um, in the news this week, uh, Chinese super, uh, Chinese quantum computer, i.e. supercomputer, 60,000 times the processing power of the biggest known, um, so, uh, the biggest known supercomputer right now. Obviously this is in a lab, blah, blah, blah. They could be lying, yada, yada, yada. But bottom line is the fact that that data is encrypted, we are quickly approaching a time where that doesn't matter on current encryption standards. Because once quantum computing gets where they can actually use it with 60,000 times the, the computing power of a supercomputer, they're, they're going to be decrypting this stuff. And instead of taking a lifetime like it would now, you know, divide that by 60,000, you're going to be having them decrypted in like a week or a couple of days or a couple months. So that's just a point to ponder. And then the other one is, I thought about this. What if this is just a giant hoax? And I'm not talking about like, like life. I'm talking about what if this, this news, what if it's a hoax? What if they got information from 300 people off of Facebook, off of those, you know, like make your superhero name where you put, you know, the, the number of years you live is your address or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. So you're suggesting that they got this information elsewhere and they're going to Robin Hood and saying to Robin Hood, look, we stole your data, but it's not really Robin Hood data. They're just trying to scare them into paying them a ransom. I'm just saying possibly because Robin Hood was in the news because they kind of shafted their customers over the, the, what was it? Not Blockbuster, but that other that other stock might have been Blockbuster. AMC. One of those uh, GameStop. Um, they kind of shafted their customers over the GameStop uh, stock thing, and a lot of people were talking about that they were in Robinhood. Um, you could probably find ten thousand users. I don't know. I'm not really getting saying that super seriously, but with Robinhood being in the news so much in the last six months, like. They could probably fake this. This could be a hoax, but I doubt it. Anyway, that's just a thought I had. It's interesting, but I, you know, maybe this won't have legs. I I just I just know that I number one, I just know how these reporters report, especially at the NBC News level. They're <laughs> not they're gonna verify this a million different times before I if this was on a different website, maybe an industry website or 
you know, um, you know, like a cybersecurity specific blog or something like that, I may, you know, give what you just said there some credence. But when NBC starts picking it up, they verify sources. They're talking to people at Robinhood already. They're making sure that this is real. Um, so I, I doubt it's somebody trying to kind of put a poker face on and say, we stole your data and I'll pay us. Um, because they're going to have, the reality of it is, is they're going to have to prove that they have this data. They're going to keep negotiating. They're going to keep saying, we're not going to pay you unless you show us more evidence. They're going to keep releasing a little bit more evidence and you, you know, and they'll use that as a negotiating tactic. Okay. We'll show you more evidence, but now the price just went up a million dollars. Hmm. Right. So either pay us now, or you're going to owe us a million dollars after we send you 50 more records. And that's what they do. I mean, we went around, we went around all the crazy crap that they do last week in our podcast last week, where we talked about how they do things and use different things to leverage the, you know, data, information, um, mind games, you know, with people just to get them to pay. So I still think it's possible just from the fact that you can get all this leaked info out there and then you could compare it with, you know, users that have said they're users of Robinhood. They're all pissed on Facebook. Anyway, I'm not trying to belabor the point. It's probably I'm 100 percent behind you that that's a really good angle to try to get paid. Um, but I just haven't seen it yet. I guess that's why I'm skeptical. I just haven't seen that behavior yet. Usually when these guys mm -hmm. have something, they have something. I shouldn't have brought it up because now someone's going to do it. <laughs> uh, you're probably already doing it. No, I get, I get accused of, of ransomware all the time. People think I'm like the mastermind behind all the ransomware hits. So <laughs> if you are, that's going to be super ironic. <laughs> yeah. Super ironic. <laughs> Trust me, I don't have that much money. I, I wouldn't be here doing this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, 500 million ransom attempts so far, according to our friends over at Sonic Wall. And by the end of the year, they're expecting about 214 million more attempts. So, I don't want to spend a whole heck of a lot, a lot of time on this article, but uh, I do want to go because I want to jump into our main topic, but let's just jump into this. Andre, what happened? What's going on over here with these attacks? Obviously, we've seen some data in here that they're up uh, 148% from last year. Uh, and these are just attempts, right? These are attempts to deploy, get ransomware on a network. Um does it does the article go into specifically like what an attempt is or or does it kind of leave that out? No, I don't believe I saw that. Um, some highlights that I did uh, notice though is it's it's saying that 1748 attempts per customer in this nine month period, which I, I believe is like wow. And keep in mind this article is, I, I presume is only talking about them, what they're seeing. You know, for, for their I mean, it's interesting because you're talking about a firewall company and, and, and these 1,748 attempts per customer could just be the amount of number of times that they blocked a malware coming through the firewall, right? They mm -hmm. detected that, you know, this email had a ransomware 
virus attached to it in a PDF. This link went back to a website where it downloaded a payload. <clears throat> um, you know, that, it could be that, right? Let's give people perspective. It could be just, hey, our firewalls detected. We looked at across, we looked across all our firewalls and we were able to, to see this many blocked attempts on known ransomware variants. Um, it could be that. What else could it be? I think it could also be actual attempts by, I mean, Sonicwall is a firewall company. They don't run an endpoint product. So I don't know how they're picking up attempts on an endpoint. So to me, this has to be, the, unless they're picking up within the firewall outbound traffic going out to um, ransomware group sites, that's the only other thing I could logically see Sonicwall being able to pick up on. Agree? Disagree? Uh, yeah, they don't really go into detail, so we just have to conjecture. Uh, sorry, Andre. Yeah, and this would kind of, to me, this would be like almost like uh, uh, an email filtering service kind of saying like there were this many attempts. Well, I mean, if it didn't make it through your firewall or your uh, email filtering service, is it really an attempt? You know? That's like saying like almost every phishing attempt is an attempt at ransomware. They do say near the bottom that it's um, evolved beyond the smash and grab techniques from just a few years ago and how they're demonstrating reconnaissance, planning, execution, uh, surgically deploying uh, tool chains, uh, you know, on and on. But, you know, it sounds it sounds like more, um, you know, more sophistication. They don't really go into any detail other than that. So it does say here, SonicWall logged the equivalent to almost 10 ransomware attempts per customer each business day, right? So that's got to be that's got to be somebody trying to deliver a ransomware payload through the firewall and SonicWall blocking it. That's that's mm -hmm. basically what that tells me. When you're talking about 10 a day, um, that's for for an average small business. That's about right. You know, Sonic Walls are not going in enterprise companies. <clears throat> Newsflash to everybody. Sonic Walls are pretty much SMB, maybe a little mid-market. Do you guys agree or disagree with that? Yeah, and, and I think this is why it's so important for um, those customers that, you know, think, oh, I can just buy a router from Best Buy or some type of just basic router with no type of uh, advanced detection, no type of subscription service where you're paying for updates and monitoring and things like that. I think that just shows you this statistic why it's so important to to not just have a basic router. Right, exactly. Because if you don't have a, a like a UTM firewall threat management, you know, unified threat management firewall or something like that, that somebody who knows what they're doing set up for you is managing, is making sure it's working and blocking and doing all the things it should be doing. Um, you're basically every day hackers are trying to get into your business and deploy ransomware about 10 times. Um, and if you're a target of a group, it's probably more. These are just kind of like spray and pray type of activities. Let's use these bots and get this stuff sent out to as many companies as we can and hope somebody clicks on something or something gets through. Um, but there are times where you become a target where they're, and, and as you mentioned, rightfully so, Randy, a few minutes ago, uh, the techniques to deploy ransomware by actors have evolved well beyond smash and grab attacks or, or spray and pray, right? It's 
go on LinkedIn, figure out who these companies are, who's their CEO, who works for them. Can we figure out what their email kind of format is? Is it first name dot last name at whatever the domain name is? Is it first initial dot last name at whatever the domain is, right? And they start sending these emails to these particular individuals and they're like, well, we can craft the email and look like it came from the CEO, right? And they'll make it look like it came in from the CEO asking you to do something, click on something, you know, reply to the email. And that's how these scams start, you know, really when you're when you're targeted. Um, it comes in as a very legitimate looking email from somebody that you work with. Doesn't necessarily always have to be the CEO. And that's one of the biggest things. It's like, on my company's website, you will never see my my staff. And I've had plenty of marketers come to me and say, "Oh, you got to put your team on your on your about us page." You know, everybody's got to be on there with their picture. And I'm like, I'm not doing that because I'm not giving some hacker some information about my security team and who those people are and what those names are, so they can find them everywhere on the web, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and try to attack those people. It's not a good idea. And it doesn't really matter what business you're in, in my opinion. I know it's nice from a marketing standpoint. Maybe it makes you feel good. And it makes you think that people are doing, you know, are going to do business with you because you have every staff member and a, and a great headshot of them and a nice bio. But at the end of the day, that's more information that hackers can use to socially engineer and break into your company. And that's how I look at it. And I never saw the benefit in terms of business dollars coming into my company because we had those faces and those bios on our website. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that, but that's my stance on those types of things that people do in the name of marketing. It's a good point. Yeah. So cool. So that's it, boys. Um, you know, this this Sonic Wall ransomware is just another indicator, another data point that we can look at to say these attacks are going to continue. They're going to continue through 2022. Uh, if you're not doing anything today about cybersecurity, you're, you're severely behind the eight ball at this point. Um, and you got to step it up, right? Because what are some things that businesses can start doing? So we're saying step it up. Um, let's have a discussion. Like, what are some things, you know, we talked about all the things that hackers can do to leverage their chances of getting paid, uh, through a, a ransomware or cyber attack. Uh, we went through that last week. So what can businesses start doing? Let's help out some businesses today. Maybe they, they're not in tune to this stuff. Maybe they don't work with a cybersecurity professional. Um, and maybe they don't have the resources or think they can afford somebody who's good enough to protect them. And, you know, maybe they want to try to start going about this themselves or at least have an understanding so they can have an intelligent conversation with their IT person. Right. So let's help some people out today. Randy, give me one. Uh, give me one thing that a business can do to start protecting themselves. Okay, um, I, I I did want to point out at the last article we covered um, near the bottom, there were some pretty good uh, tips. Also, we're gonna um, be here all day. Yeah, we would be here all day. And <laughs> you know, from from that article we looked at last week, right. the, I think that where you should start is with a training program for your employees. Um, make them this this would be one of several things you ought to do right away um 
And so I wouldn't say, you know, do this, and then, you know, two months later, do the next. But this would be one of the first things you want to do is set up a training, a training program where one, they are your employees are getting educated um, about cybersecurity, email attacks, things like that um, to raise the water level that way. And then two, where you're also sending out fake phishing emails where they're having to decide and learn hey, is this a legit email or not? You know, is this worth uh, clicking on? And right there, because since, you're, since your employees are your weakest link, you start there, you're going to raise the water level of your, your business substantially. Yeah, it definitely creates a culture of cybersecurity. Um, but let me play devil's advocate a little bit, right? Because I, I know the kind of training and awareness program that you guys deploy in your businesses for your own people and your clients. But a lot of times when I'm talking to business owners about this particular thing, I hear, and I don't know if you guys agree with this, but I hear often things like, oh, we do that. We, yeah, once a year we have a guy come in. I actually had a company reach out to me and they're like, we want to hire you to come in and do our cybersecurity awareness training. I'm like, great. Here's how we do it. And they're like, oh, you can't just come in and talk to us for like an hour one day. And I'm like, no, that doesn't work. And I won't do it. Like, yeah, I'll, I could charge you five grand to come in there and talk to all your people and, you know, walk out of there with five grand. And guess what? You have no culture of cybersecurity and your people are still going to click on shit every, thing, every day because they're going to forget 20 minutes later what I taught them. Mm-hmm. Right. So you got to reinforce this stuff. And I just I just think that business owners think that cyber awareness training is like a one time thing that you only need once a year to check a box or once a quarter or, or twice a year, have some guy come in, put everybody in a conference room, maybe feed them lunch, you know, and have this guy like do a presentation for an hour or two. And then everybody's security aware. So I think that's the worst way to go about it. There are much better ways. Um, regular, you know, maybe weekly or monthly delivered training that your people are regularly reviewing. And then you're, you're testing on and you're quizzing on the comprehension of that. Um, of that content along with the phishing to make sure you're spot checking and make sure that somebody's just not remembering answers in a video that they watched and then filling out the quiz and make, make sure that this stuff is actually resonating and they're able to identify different types of phishing emails. Um, that's what works. So I don't know if you guys agree with what I said there, but I hear that a ton from business owners that I talk to is just like, yeah, we do it once a year. It you're told you're you're spot on with that. It can't just be once a year. It's not a one and done kind of thing. Um, it also has to start with the business owner or the leaders of the business. And if the business owner's like, yeah, do this training, but then you know, don't put MFA on my computer because you know that's a pain in the butt and I might need it someday. And you know, don't block me from running stuff because I might need it. I mean it can't be like that. It, you really got to bite the bullet and it's got to start at the top and you're right. Company- but that, that attitude doesn't change without security and awareness training and right. repeated, you know, repeated information, right? Cause once you hear something once maybe, but then you hear it three, four, five times and it starts to sink in. Then, then you're like, you know what? I do realize now that I don't need admin rights on my computer. It's not critical. I'm not installing things every day. I'm not being prompted for an admin password every day. You know, I don't need to be sitting there running my computer 
you know, every day with admin rights, um, which is an absolute common thing that we run into uh, with business owners is like everybody else, but not me. Everybody else needs to take cybersecurity awareness training, but not me. That's the worst attitude to have. Nobody's going to buy in if you're not leading. Uh, and that's the reality. So, Andre, give me give me a thing, uh, something business owners can do to protect themselves from ransomware. Yeah, so Randy kind of touched on it on the MFA, but I just want to kind of go deeper into it. Um, anything that you do that you log in, if it has the ability to have a second step of authentication after you put in that password, turn it on, make it a requirement for, um, and, and even if you're using a software or, or a web app that doesn't have it, you know, put in a request like, hey, this is too sensitive, like you have to put this. So I'm gonna go with the, the, the MFA. Um, also another item that I have on my list that I require uh, for, if you're dealing, for example, with your accountant, and your accountant is just send, sending you your tax returns. Uh, breaking. Come on. Oh, I, missed, I missed it. I'm sorry. I'm messing with you. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and then if you if you're dealing with financials with your accountant, for example, or a vendor, and they're just sending in the sensitive information back and forth with you, you need to stop that, and you need to tell them you need a process to send me this information. Or here is when you're dealing with me. This is how you send information, and these are my rules if you want to do business with me. So on top of your MFA comment, um, one of the things I want to point out is, and I don't know if we're going to cover this, so I just want to quickly point it out, but making sure that you also have things set up in a way where somebody, if they get in, they can't easily disable something, mm -hmm. Right. So you shouldn't be able, like your antivirus or your endpoint protection on your computers, I shouldn't be able to get on your system and uninstall that or disable it, right? If you have admin rights on your computer, that's a given, right? But a little known thing that a lot of business owners might not know is like pretty much every, every major reputable endpoint antivirus protection that I'm aware of allows you to set an uninstall password, right? So you can't remove that. Now, I... I know in certain cases, these things can be circumvented, but put that password on so nobody can install that software easily, right? It's another step where it's another hurdle that somebody would have to get over um, to, uh, you know, disable your security software so they can basically deliver their ransomware attack. Um, so just remember that, that there are certain things on your systems that if you don't configure them properly, Somebody could uninstall them or get rid of them, disable them, et cetera. Uh, and there's built-in precautions or security features within these programs that prevent things like that from happening. So, so I'm going to throw one out there. Um, really important for business owners. And I think this is going to be one of the bigger ones that business owners probably aren't in tune to. But that's establish a point of contact for your employees, and this would kind of dovetail into your security and awareness training because you want to be able to train your employees on what to do if they see something, spot something, or know that they did something. Um, so employees need a mechanism to report uh, suspicious activity uh, of a potential event, of a potential attacker, right? Or uh, creating kind of like that environment or that culture of 
it's okay if you clicked on something or opened something you shouldn't have. Uh, don't hide it. And here's who you need to go talk to. Like, here's who you need to report it to. Uh, and that needs to be established in every business. It needs to be trained on part of, in my opinion, the employee handbook. You give it to employees and they sign off that they know what the security policy is, what, uh, you know, basically what they should be looking for in terms of, you know, if they see something like mouse, mouse moving on the screen with nobody at the keyboard and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and mouse in front of them and nobody's remoted in that they're aware of. Um, you know, that could mean a, an attacker has control of your system. Uh, but then simple things like, Hey, I clicked on an email. I clicked on a link. Uh, I was on Facebook at lunch and somebody sent me something and it was for a handbag and I clicked on it. And then, you know, they messaged me an hour later and said, Hey, if you clicked on my mess or if you got a message from me about a handbag, don't click on it. But I already clicked on it and I was at work when I did it. Oh, I can't tell anybody. That's what usually goes through people's head. No, you got to create that culture where it's like, okay, you're allowed to do these things on your computer. You're allowed to go on Facebook during lunch, but you also need to report when you click on something you shouldn't have so we can investigate it. So I want to put that out there as a big one because I don't think a lot of businesses are doing this. I don't think they're establishing a point of contact and I don't think they're training their people on, on that it's okay that you did these things. Just go report it to this person. Yeah. Right. You guys agree with that? You like that idea? What are, you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, one of the things too, where um, kind of like you know the champion uh, method, where the, prior to COVID, where if someone did get an email, they don't want to send a ticket to IT and go through that whole process. They just like kind of like in the banking world, if you go to a teller, for example, and they're not hundred percent sure that this transaction is legit or a check, they'll step away, ask the supervisor to, hey, can you initial this for me that this signature matches or something like that to cover me and just another set of eyes. So it's just the same thing as like, you know, someone in your organization, uh, maybe a team that could just double check an email that's coming in just to say, okay, yep, this looks legit or no, go ahead and call this person and ask them if they sent this email. So Randy, you got another one for us? Um, well, yeah, just going uh, down the uh, list. Um, next on the list uh, talks about monitoring your network security. Um, and being aware of what's going on. So basically have an insight into your network and getting, this would be on your internal network, getting insight when stuff is going down in the form of warnings, messages, notifications. And then I would kind of add to this also, so many, we deal with so many customers that are either 100% cloud-based or hybrid. I mean, that's, the majority are cloud-based, and so your cloud, um, your cloud softwares, you need insight into that also. So you're monitoring what's going on, and you know, like you should be knowing, like when somebody shares a file from your company, if it's allowed, say by OneDrive, you should have policies about that. But like if a file gets shared outside of the organization, a forwarding uh, email gets set up insight like that so you can you can start getting clues that they're messing around in your network and they're there so then you can do something about it yeah this isn't like pie in the sky type of stuff that randy's talking about this is absolutely stuff that companies like ours can do for you, your company if you don't have an it person who is talking to you about these things is uh is is capable of doing these things there are companies and experts out there who are but 
I, I've said it a million times on this podcast. Like they, they don't get in in five minutes and deploy ransomware 10 minutes later. They're in there for a while. So um, they're putting tools on your systems and you can look for, you can put AI and, and detect when somebody puts certain <laughs> tools like a network scanner on your network. Um, like we talked about disabling the antivirus, like every computer that we manage, <clears throat> if somebody disables the antivirus somehow, we're getting an alert within minutes that, uh, you know, this antivirus was disabled on this computer and we're looking into it. Um, presence of hacking tools like uh, Cobalt Strike, Mimikatz. Um, these are all things that can be scanned for. These tools, in most cases, should not be on anybody's network. And if you are using those tools, you're obviously, you know, suppressing the alerts around them. Otherwise, you're monitoring and alerting around these types of tools, which can easily be done. Um, and then patterns of suspicious behavior, like you mentioned, stuff is going to happen. They're going to try to add accounts to more privileged types of groups, or they're going to try to elevate a privilege on a specific account or create new accounts um, or computers that, you know, might pop up on the network that you're not familiar with or managing. Are you looking for that stuff? Are you having alerts sent when these computers show up on the network? Okay. And then what are you doing? Are you calling your con? Are you getting a phone call from your IT people where they're saying, Hey, this computer got on the network. We weren't able to tie it back to any computer. You know, did you have anybody in the office? Did you have a visitor in, you know, where you really got to get down to and your IT team need to get down to the point where they're looking into all of these things and determining if this is legitimate or if this is somebody nefarious who's kind of poking around, seeing what they can do. So great point there. Andre, what else we got? Backup. Oh, backup. <laughs> secure your data, secure your load, right? So um, essentially you want to have, uh, depending, there's different environments. People are working from home now, so they're not necessarily VPNing into an office setting. They now have the data on the cloud. But guess what? Microsoft... Things can happen with the Azure, uh, with SharePoint or OneDrive or Dropbox. They don't guarantee that they back up your data. So definitely have a, a backup if it's cloud-based or if you have the traditional you know, physical server, have multiple layers of backup where that's physical and then on the cloud. So the 3 two, one method is a very uh, tried and true method for this kind of stuff. Um, if you don't know what... Uh, what three, two, one method is, I just say GTS and uh, just go learn about it. It's very easy. It's not complicated. Um, so I'm going to throw one out there for you guys. But uh, I, we touched on it a little bit with what Randy said, but implementing a process to scan for possible malicious insider activity, such as employees who try to gain access to unauthorized accounts or assets. Um, very easily done, quite frankly. Um, mm -hmm. Putting a process in place to scan for employees who might be doing things or a criminal hacker who has now taken control of this employee. These are basically the two things you're looking for. Either you have an insider who's, who's working with criminals to do something in your business or they're working with themselves because they're about ready to quit and they want to steal all your proprietary data so they can start their own business or whatever they have planned next. Or three, you have a criminal hacker who's basically taken over uh, as this person in your business and they're trying to use this employee's account to further their attack. So that's it at a very high level. 
Um, some of the things that you want to look for here are, um, you know, put, you know, I'm not going to kind of go into the tactics that we use to figure this stuff out, but making sure that you have things segregated in your business. We talked about air, air gapping last week and things like that, but making sure that you just don't have like one big drive or all these map drives on your computers that everybody has access to. Right. And things like that, because you won't have the visibility or telemetry to go in and determine, you know, should this marketing employee have access to our operations, you know, information. Um, if you don't segregate that and control that, it's almost impossible for you to to do what we're talking about. So that's a hard pill for a lot of businesses as well. It's a big challenge that we've helped a lot of companies overcome over the years you walk in and you're like, you got everything on the business share, right? How many times have you guys seen that? A million. A million, yeah. right? And big companies do this just as much as small companies where you walk in, everything's on one spot and every employee has access to that, to that one area. And, oh, what do you have in here? And you start doing scans and you're finding all kinds of P, PII and social security numbers, credit card numbers that everybody in the company has access to. Yeah. Um, so this is why it's important that you segregate this stuff, not only to keep people away from things that they shouldn't have, but it also allows you to see who's trying to knock on a door that they shouldn't be knocking on. You know, and it goes back to like some of the basic, you know, the big buzzword these days is zero trust. Um and the idea behind that, though, um, a couple of things. One is you only give access of specific things to specific people that need access. So this giant, you know, company drive, if if you could step back, because the other thing you want to do is you want to assume that the bad actors are in the in the stuff. So if you have this giant company drive, if there were bad actors in that, would you be cool with that? Usually no. Um, and just that idea of, of limiting, 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 like there's no reason for a regular user to be an admin of their workstation anymore. It doesn't have to happen. There's no reason for every user in the company to have access to every bit of data the company's ever had. I mean, those type of things. And if you just think through it from a zero trust perspective, it can help you decide, you know, where to limit that access. And then also the assumption that the bad actors are already in there, which they're hopefully not. But then then, you know, setting up the hurdles and segmenting all that stuff makes you pushes you towards doing all that. Yep. So we're coming to the end of uh, our recording time here, gentlemen. We got two more points. The last one I think I want to spend a little bit more time on this one. It's kind of a common mistake. It's actually how we see a lot of the big attacks that we've seen in 2021 go down, but disable instances of internet facing remote desktop protocol or RDP uh, to prevent attackers from accessing your networks. If employees need remote access to internal systems, put it behind VPN or a zero trust connection and be sure that multi-factor authentication is in effect. I agree with that hundred um, percent. Got to get it behind the VPN. Got to get it. If you, if you need to have it open, I would highly recommend you look at a third-party tool before you consider RDP. Third-party tools have 
a lot of these ones that are remote access have already had the security security built into it. So you don't have to go in and set up all the telemetry that you need if you're going to open up RDP for remote access. That's just my perspective. That's what I believe. I studied this. I've researched it. I've tested it myself. The tools that I've evaluated, the third-party tools, like I'll give you one, log me in. I don't use it personally. I've evaluated it. I love it. I, I think for most users, log me in is a very good and secure way to access your computer remotely if you need to do it through the cloud. Always have two-factor turned on on these accounts no matter what. You should be two-factor when you log into something like log me in through the website, and then you should be two-factor again when you actually try to remote into the computer you're trying to remote into. Um, that's the best way to do it. And then there's all kinds of logging and security built into log me in. So you can determine like if somebody's trying to access your account, um, trying to log into your system through log me in. There's really no way to do that through RDP, right? Mm -hmm. Like somebody could be banging away on your RDP all day long. And if you don't have things set up properly, they could just continue to bang away all day long until they get it. Right. Where something like log me in, they're going to give you like five attempts and then they're going to block that IP address. They're going to block, you know, a lot of different things are going to happen automatically. Um, and a lot of IT people are probably listening to me right now going, this fucking guy's recommending log me in over RDP. Yeah, I am. Because RDP is garbage. And if you're using it in your network today, you're a clown. And I don't care how good you think you are at cybersecurity. I can hack that RDP shit if you don't do it the way this is laid out. Well, what they're saying here is that you're, so you basically your ports, your RDP ports would be closed to the internet and it would require a VPN um, to connect to the network, to be able to use it over the network. And then the VPN would need to have multi-factor authentication. Right. Because I've seen a million, I've, not a million times, but I've seen more often than you would hope, companies that put VPN in place and they do this, but there's no two factor on the VPN. So if I'm a hacker and I can get on your VPN, I can get into your RDP. Right. Yeah. And that's the biggest fallacy and problem that I see going on right now out there is that companies don't put two factor on their VPN connections. It's just a username and password. So if you're listening to this, you're an employee, you're a CEO of a company, and all you have to do is type in a username and password, and you're not challenged in any way, either through text message, email, two-factor through uh, an app. If you're not being challenged in some way when you connect, you are susceptible to what I just talked about. Yep. You are 100% possible that a criminal hacker is using a legitimate username and password on your network to dial into your VPN and connect to your network just like you do. And you can't. You also can't secure it by that plus certificates because they can get into the config folder and take the certificates yeah, and then yeah. they're back in the same boat. Yeah, then they've got the connection. It's going to respond to them. You, you also want to have, it's typically, I don't know if it's turned on by default now. It was never turned on by default in the past with Microsoft Windows, but a policy that say if someone tries to log in five times, their computer and they fail, their computer's locked for like exactly. an hour. Exactly. And, you know, that way, if they got a hold of your VPN, if they got a hold of the certificate, if they got a hold of the multi-factor able to get in, then boom, you're going to stop them from trying to log in all day long. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll tell you right now, you're talking about Active Directory, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, our standard at our company is if you try to log into an account somewhere between three to five times and you fail, we lock the account and that account doesn't come unlocked mm -hmm. until a person goes in and reviews that and says, okay, these were legitimate connections or these weren't. Nice. And we don't turn, we don't unlock that account until we have that information. And then we will unlock the account or we may not unlock the account because we realize that, you know, a, a nefarious actor is probably trying to use that versus somebody else. Um, but we, we go in and we cross the board, we disable the auto unlock of locked accounts. Newsflash everybody out there. Windows ships out of the box with this setting automatically set to unlock your account. I think it's 30 minutes. I, I, I don't remember. It's either 5, 15, or 30 minutes. I don't remember. I don't know if you guys remember. It shipped for 20-something years with... With it that way. With, so with like, nothing. So, like, let's break it down, right? What mean, what that means is, is if you log in, if you try to log into your Windows computer and you type your password wrong, so out of the box, it's significantly higher than five. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what the number is, but the failed attempts is significantly higher than five. And the other, the other side of this is once the account's locked, Windows by default is set to unlock that account after a certain period of time. I think like a half hour, I think it's 30 minutes, but it might be shorter. Um, now, what I can do as a criminal hacker is I can take a thing called a bot, which is simply just a computer program that I write that runs on a server that's exposed to the internet that does certain things that I want this thing to do. And I can point this at your VPN and I can say, keep logging into that account. If you get a response back saying the account's locked, stop trying to log in, wait 30 minutes, and then start trying to log in again. So it waits 30 minutes, account becomes unlocked by Windows automatically, and boom, I'm starting to fuck, hammer away on that machine to see if I can get crack that password and get logged in. And unless somebody's being alerted to that or watching, this could be happening on your network right now. No one will ever know it. And eventually that hacker is going to crack that password and get it. Yeah, the, the, the advantage that has, though, over nothing, if there's nothing there, they could do... 40,000 attempts an hour. Thousand percent. And I've seen that too. I've seen I've yeah. seen where administrators, IT people have gone in and turned that setting off completely. So there's no account lockouts and there's no time frame that somebody has to wait before they can log in again. The account automatically, you know, doesn't lock first off. And if it does, it's for a very short period of time. And then they start banging away again. Right. Right. So anything else you guys want to add to that? <laughs> Because this last one's the most important one, um, and that is an incident response plan is updated. Is, is number one is created, number two is updated, and then number three is reviewed and tested. Mm -hmm. Right. So the number one thing that I ask business owners today when I meet them is, you know, because a lot of people when I meet them and I say, "Hey, we're a cybersecurity company," I go, "Oh, we got that. We got that." Right. That cover. We're good. Oh, when's the last time you reviewed your incident response plan? And then you start asking them questions about things that should be in the incident response plan. You learn very quickly that they don't really have an incident response plan. 
So if you're a business owner and you think you're good and you don't have an incident response plan and you have no idea what an incident response plan is and the details within it, like who are you going to call? Ghostbusters, right? Who are you going to call when the ransomware hits the screen, right? Let me give you a hint. If you think it's your IT guy person company, it's probably the wrong person. You probably don't have a good enough incident response plan. Um, what are some other things within an incident response plan that business owners should have in there and they should basically know off the top of their head? Like if, I, if we came up to a business owner and said, hey, you have an incident response plan? Great. What's in it? What would one, what would one thing that you would want to know is in your incident response plan? I would want to know who's going to be the point of contact. Yeah. Your phone I, already, I already did that one. You can't cheat. <laughs> I already did that one. I would also put an attorney that, that may need to be called for like- Beautiful. Beautiful point. What kind of an attorney? Well, for our smart businesses, they usually only have their business attorney. So, the, and then from there, they'll kind of, um, you know- So I'm going to level up the conversation a little yeah. bit. And I would highly recommend and we started doing this with our clients in the last six months. I would highly recommend that as you're crafting and reviewing your incident response plan in the next quarter, if you're listening to this, go find yourself a breach attorney and put their name in your incident response plan. You do not want to be looking for a breach attorney when you have ransomware up on your screen. Identify this person. You do not need to hire most of these guys on retainer. You can just establish a relationship with them and say, we're adding you to our incident response plan as the guy that we're going to call if we ever have an incident. And most of these guys are going to be like, okay, great. Right. And most of them don't require a retainer. The ones I'm familiar with won't require you to put them on retainer for something like that. Um, and that is something that a lot of incident response plans, I'm so glad you mentioned identifying an attorney and it needs to be done ahead of time because that's one thing that I've noticed is missing in a lot of incident response plans. And that's a great question to ask a business owner is who's your breach attorney listed in your incident response plan? So Randy, what question would you want to ask? I'd want to know, um, what do you do with the computer that has ransomware? Do you turn it off? Do you disconnect it from the network? Do you run around like a chicken with your head cut off screaming? There needs to be a plan. What yeah, I wouldn't ask them. I wouldn't give them multiple choice. I'd be like, what, what, what's your first move or what are you going to do when you get ransomware? What are you, That's what, what I'm saying. That needs to be in the disaster recovery plan. Absolutely, 100%. Now, I'm, I'm a business owner building a disaster recovery plan. Give me the best thing that I can do. What's the number one thing that I could do? Because I'm thinking like old school, right? I'm running around and I'm pulling cords out of the back of the computer, just like I was told back in the day. Is that the best thing to do? You know, it really depends on the situation because some industries are going to require um, that that computer stays on. So forensics can happen later. hundred so, percent. That's, that's every in, in, incident, every industry now. That's so our software will isolate the machine um, you can do that, but what's like, if I'm a business owner, I don't have it. What's the one thing I could do or one thing that should be in my incident response plan that if I get hit with ransomware, the very, probably one of the first things I'm going to consider doing is what? 
Is it running around and unplugging the machines? We've already said no. So what is it? What can I, what should I be doing? Or what should my incident response plan say that if we see ransomware on computers, what do I do next? Do I call somebody? Do I? Yeah. If you, I mean, if, if they have cyber insurance policy, definitely give them, give that 1-800 number. That's not going to be my first call though. What's the first thing you guys would do or tell somebody to do in the event that they have a ransomware attack going on? Randy, you kind of already said it. Like, well, I mean, um, are you, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what you're asking. Are you saying like unplug the router? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm asking you. What well, I mean, that, that could be what you do. I mean, I don't know if I, I mean, you just disconnect the wire that connects you to the internet, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have a company, like you said, Randy, like you guys do is isolate the endpoint. If you can't do that, you know, programmatically or automatically through some kind of tool, then walk over and unplug your Comcast or Verizon modem or your Cox or whatever internet provider you have, just unplug it. And then that can disconnects the attackers from being able to see or do anything within your network. No. Yep. That's not spread. So I did say Cox, Randy, I did. It's Cox <laughs> communications. Let's get, let's get out of the second grade. now. So also too, is, you know, your, your, your incident response plan is going to be about, you know, maybe 10 pages, 15 pages of all this stuff, but you also kind of need just a, 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 excuse me. A one page. Yeah. You also need a one pager, like something where it's posted in the break room or in the server room or wherever it is that someone can just like, all right, boom, boom, boom. And then, you know, and then, you know, go from there. That's a great point too, right? That's another great point by Andre that we, he has is a, an incident response plan is not something that should be uh, done in a silo where maybe the IT people and the business owners kind of meet and put this together and then, you know, they revisit it once a year, once a quarter, whatever they decide. Um, but then it's, I think, a mistake I see commonly with businesses is they don't go out to the rest of the staff and train them on what was decided, right? So what, what that what that ends up doing is that puts the company in a position where one person, one individual needs to be called in order to implement the incident response plan when if you educate your employees and teach them about this, then you have more people who are capable and able to help. Like what if the IT guys are at a conference, they're out to lunch, right? And you get hit with ransomware. Wouldn't it be great if you told all your employees, just run over to the Comcast modem and pull the plug. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, who knows how much damage you're stopping by doing that quickly. You never can tell, but you know, I'd, I, my, in my company, I'd rather have my employees trained to do that than not. Yeah. You know, that kind of leads to one other uh, thing is, and you kind of kind of hinted at it, is that you you need to know the disaster, you need to know the incident response plan before you have an incident. So you, you don't want to be like breaking it out, blowing the dust off of it, and then start to read it for the first time when you have ransomware on one of the computers. You already need to know what you need to do. And it's there to keep you from losing your cool when you know what you need to do already because you've already read over it. But perfect, you know, perfect point to wrap up the conversation because what's the maturity of an incident response plan, right? You first off, you got to build it, right? Once you have it in place, then 
you got to test it. And that's what you're talking about, Ramey. You got to test that plan. You can't just build it and then wait for an event to happen and go, okay, let's see if it works. Right. Right. So the, so the next step before you actually do a full blown test or, or simulation, what are some things that business owners could do? Because like, I don't want to just pretend like I have ransomware. I can't take my whole network offline for that long. And quite frankly, I'm not confident that my team, you know, will get me back up and running if we do this test. So we're, I don't want to do a test. What can I do in the interim to get me from creating the document to a full blown test? What is something in between that you would recommend business people leaders should be doing with cybersecurity professionals in order to kind of get a better picture of what this would look like if we actually had to implement it? Not sure if you're going this way, but what we do is drills with our with our clients. So we have like two point con like for like the incident response plan says unplug router. Who the heck knows what the router is, you know? So like you know, label it that says router. This is how you go in the room and this is it and things like that. Right. You can do all that, and that's usually done. Like we do tabletop exercises before we do, and, and that's what we call them, right? So it's when when business owners, leaders sit down with the technical people, the cybersecurity people, and we look at the plan and every, I would say every manager in your company should be involved unless they're like a manager where this just doesn't touch them. You know, I would still say they, they should be involved, but if this doesn't touch their area and you see no need for them to be involved, that's okay. But if most managers should be involved, they're the, they're the kind of generals that are out there with your troops, kind of know what goes on in their department. And then you run through the plan and you ask questions like, does this make sense from your standpoint? Right. And then, well, no, you're, you're saying that we got to do X, Y, and Z, but that won't work because this, this, and this. And then those discussions start to happen and, and perspectives start to be gained throughout the company on how this plan can be improved because what, the C-level thought and what the IT guys thought aren't really how it happens down in the trenches in this particular department. So this is an opportunity for these managers and these people to have input on what the incident response plan looks like. Again, this is a process. It's always improved. You're not going to knock this out and, and get this solved in one sitting. And this is something that's a living, breathing document that you're constantly working on and improving and evolving. I would say at a minimum, you're reviewing this quarterly with stakeholders and then once a year you're bringing in those those like maybe middle level managers who are looking at what you've put together and kind of saying yeah this this makes sense for my department or it doesn't um that's kind of how we do it here so i don't know if you guys have any input or different perspectives but that's that's you know tabletops are the next step after you create the plan before you do a full-blown irdr test Yep. Go. Cool. Randy's taking notes like crazy. He's writing feedback. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm always taking notes. <laughs> My man. So, all right, guys. Thank you for your time today. If we don't have anything else to add, I'm going to end the end our uh, recording for our podcast. Another another very good episode. We went over an hour today. Uh, we had a lot of stuff to to talk about um, to our audience, and I think we get a, a lot of insight and advice quite frankly, to our MSP community too, because I'm sure a lot of the things that we said today, a lot of the guys that we're friends with that run companies similar to ours aren't doing this stuff. 
um, or they might not be doing them exactly how we're doing it. So we, you know, we're giving them a new perspective. Um, and that's the name of the game. So if we did that, share the show, share our show, help us grow the show, help us educate millions of people about cybersecurity. That's it for me. We'll see you guys next week. All right.